On the day after the match race deal was finalized, Smith walked to the Pimlico starter stand and rang the bell several times, listening to the sound. It clanged like an alarm clock. He returned to the barn and collected some redwood planks, a telephone, and an alarm clock. Dismantling the clock and the phone, he rigged up a bell with the alarm and the phone batteries, then cut the redwood into a box to hold the works and wired a triggering button to the outside. He grabbed the box and took Wolf and Seabiscuit to the track. Spectators who gathered by the hundreds each morning to watch the horses train murmured at the sight of the box. Smith lined up Seabiscuit, moved alongside him, and hit the bell button. As the bell rang, Wolf threw the reins up on Seabiscuit's neck and shouted him on. The horse rocketed down the track. Day after day, Wolf and Smith repeated the drill dozens of times. The horse, obviously enjoying himself, began blowing off the line with explosive power. The race was a national obsession. The names War Admiral and Seabiscuit were on everyone's lips and in every paper, and the inflamed division between the horse's supporters broadened and deepened into an impassioned East-versus-West rivalry. Everybody, Vanderbilt recalled, cared about it. A rumor that President Roosevelt was going to denounce one of the horses during a fireside chat made the rounds, but he kept his allegiances secret. The whole country is divided into two camps, marveled the San Francisco Chronicle. People who never saw a horse race in their lives are taking sides. If the issue were deferred another week, there would be a civil war between the War Admiral Americans and the Seabiscuit Americans. At Pimlico, horsemen gathered for the post-position draw. Both horses' handlers wanted the rail, which, if the horse could hold it, would ensure the shortest trip. If Seabiscuit drew the rail, observers thought he might still have a chance. If War Admiral drew it, they believed the race would be over before it began. War Admiral drew the rail. The Riddle crew watched Smith's peculiar training regimen indifferently, confident that War Admiral would outbreak Seabiscuit. The Howard Barn preferred that their opponents keep believing that. Smith did little more than make a few grunts about Seabiscuit's speed. Pollard simply lied to the reporters telling them that Seabiscuit would concede the lead to War Admiral, then try to catch him in the stretch. Alexander, the only newsman who knew of Wolf and Pollard's strategy, asked them if he could state in print that Seabiscuit would get the early lead. Both said yes, if he didn't quote them directly. Both fully realized, Alexander wrote later, that War Admiral's connections would pay no attention at all to the pipe dream of a mere newspaper columnist. Alexander published the prediction. All it did was raise a hearty laugh in the press box. Howard was stung by their laughter. On the day before the race, sitting in the Pimlico clubhouse surrounded by reporters, he made a flat statement. War Admiral won't outbreak Seabiscuit, he won't outgame him, and he won't beat him. An awkward silence followed. Someone politely changed the subject. Later that day, Wolfe received a telegram from Pollard. There is one sure way of winning with the biscuit. You ride War Admiral. That night, Baltimore glittered and rang with pre-race parties. Inside Pimlico, the track was hushed. Wolf walked onto the course, clutching a flashlight. Recent rains had not fully drained from the track, and he worried that Seabiscuit might be compromised by heavy going. Walking around the far turn, the jockey weaved back and forth, 
hunting for the driest, hardest path. At the top of the home stretch, Wolf stopped. Under his foot, he felt a firm strip, the print of a tractor wheel hidden by harrows. Tracing its course, he found that it circled the entire oval, a few feet from the rail. He knew what he would have to do when the bell rang the following afternoon. I figures to myself, he said later, Wolf, get on that lane and follow it. He walked the course until he had memorized the path of the tractor print, then quietly stepped off the track. I knew it, he said later, like an airplane pilot knows a radio beam. Vanderbilt had hoped that scheduling his race for a Tuesday would keep attendance within Pimlico's 16,000-seat capacity. It didn't. By 10 a.m., six and a half hours before the race, a vast, agitated throng was already banging up against the fences. Vanderbilt swung the gates open and unleashed a human stampede. All morning long, automobiles and special trains disgorged thousands and thousands of passengers from every corner of the nation and the world. The assembly of foreign dignitaries alone equaled a normal day's attendance. By midday, the grandstand and clubhouse were glutted, so Vanderbilt redirected fans by the thousands into the infield. The crowds kept coming in.